Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one. The name Thelma Schoonmaker may not be as well known as that of Martin Scorsese, but as the film editor on Gangs of New York, The King of Comedy, The Last Temptation of Christ, classics such as Raging Bull and Goodfellas, and more recently The Departed, Shutter Island, The Wolf of Wall Street and Silence, she has been the final shaper of the celebrated director's vision for over 30 years. In a 2003 interview with Miles Dungan, she talked about how she stumbled into the business of editing her working relationship with Scorsese, and how Marty introduced her to her future husband, Michael Powell. For Gangs of New York, Martin Scorsese. And the winner is... Martin Scorsese. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Sit down. Relax. Thank you. Thank you so much. I... uh, I wanted to make sure I thanked everybody that uh, Dante Ferretti's extraordinary sets, Michael Ballhouse's photography, Thelma Schoonmaker, uh, her, her editing for many years with me, um, uh, Sandy Powell's And it costume. has been a very long association indeed. Film editor Thelma Schoonmaker has been working with Martin Scorsese for the better part of two decades now. She's been with him for most of his most successful films and it appears that she wasn't destined, originally at least, to be a film editor at all. I grew up outside of America, even though both my parents are American. My father worked for an oil company. And because of growing up outside, I, I had a very much of an interest in the world. And um, I decided maybe I should become try and become a diplomat and work in the State Department. And uh, when I went for the final exams there, I passed them all, but I got to the stress test. And they said to me I was way too politically inappropriate for the State Department. I would be very unhappy there. I wouldn't be able to express my strong opinions about, say, apartheid in South Africa. So I went back and did another year of graduate work in at the university. And I just happened one day to see an ad in the New York Times that said, willing to train assistant film editor. And that never happens. I wish it did for people. It would make it easier to get into the business. Mainly editors recommend assistants to each other. Uh, so I decided to go answer. And it was this horrible hack who was butchering the films of Fellini, Antonioni, Truffaut, Godard for late night television slots. And if he thought it was too long for the slot, he would just take a reel out of Rocco and his brother by uh, Visconti. Just, it was shocking to me. I said, you can't do that. And he said, nobody looks at these things. But I knew enough from that that I wanted to maybe pursue it. I had no idea really how films were made. And New York University was offering a six-week course in filmmaking. And I went to that. And it was very lucky for me. It was in the summer uh, because Martin Scorsese was there. He would not have been there the year before. He would not have been there the year after. Uh, And so someone had butchered his film in the negative cutting. And because of this horrible job I'd had, I knew something about negative cutting. Uh, And so I went over and helped him fix his film. And from that point on, we started working together. It was just remarkable uh, coincidence of fate that I read that and answered that ad and then went that year to NYU. And so not only did I get a great job, but he later introduced me to my husband, Michael Powell, the British film director. So I think I've had all the luck anyone could have in their (laughs) life. And Scorsese himself was an an editor at that stage, and you actually worked with him on the, the Woodstock movie. Tell me a bit about that. 
Uh, Marty taught me everything I know about editing. He editing is his favorite part of filmmaking. Uh, after we left, after he left university, right after that course that I had been in with him, uh, we all started making documentaries. A group of us from NYU uh, started making documentaries in New York about against the Vietnam War and supporting Martin Luther King in the South and about remarkable individuals like Buckminster Fuller and things like that. But we were also helping directors like Marty finish his first feature film, Who's That Knocking? We all volunteered our time, and uh, it was wonderful. We were just a small crew of seven people. Everyone loaded the magazines, uh, ran sound, pushed the wheelchair, which we used for a dolly, drove the car for tracking shots, and um, I even learned to tie into power sources uh, in the basement. Uh, The person who knew the most about electricity said to me to bend my knees in case I got the jolt. At least it would break the connection. But it was fun. I mean, we all worked so hard. We had a great time. Everyone was exhausted at the end of the day, but there was no one sleeping or doing crossword puzzles like I see when I go on sets today, which disturbs me. Out of that experience of making these documentaries, we filmed a concert with Aretha Franklin, and we I had one of the early film editing machines with three picture heads, and we were running all the cameraman's work in sync, and we thought, gee, that really dynamizes her performance. Why don't we try and make a, a, a cover a rock concert that way? And the chance came up to do Woodstock. Uh, the the people putting on the festival did were not interested in a film, so the only person who would gamble on it was Michael Wadley, the director of Woodstock, and we all went up unpaid. Every wife husband we could find to help us load the vast amounts of film we were burning up and we made a film which then became very famous but at the time we had no idea even if it was going to be you know we were going to be recover the expense of buying the film stock it was very scary and for three days and nights we did nothing but film 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 we were all completely exhausted by the end of it uh the who kicked us off the stage at first because people were frantically negotiating for the rights backstage and um but we ended up with this incredible treasure trove of film which we then were able to spend quite a bit of time editing and scorsese was working on it at first um and then left to go buy into Hollywood, uh, where he did finally get some breaks. And um, I didn't work with him then, though, for another 10 years because I wasn't in the union. But you and got an Academy Award nomination for that. That's right. I was the supervising editor, and I did get an Academy Award nomination. <laughs> and I mean, how much film are you talking about? How many oh. cameras? How long did it take to actually put it all together? We had an enormous number of cameras. We had six cameras on the stage at all times, one in the front, two on the sides, and one in the back, uh, and sometimes two in the back. And then we had 15 cameramen out in the field uh, mm. covering the documentary side of things. So it was an enormous amount of, uh, of footage, 16 millimeter footage. It took almost two months just to sync up the sound, which all had to be done by eye, and uh, a long time for us to finally carve out what we what we ended up with. But it was a great joy to work on it. And, and I'm sure it would have been particularly difficult because my memory of it is that there was that there was parallel narrative going on. You'd have uh, on screen at the same time, you'd have what was going on at the stage, and you might have two little vignettes of what was going on in the field at the same time. That's right. We, we, we wanted to experiment with a multiple camera. I've never, a multiple image on the screen. I, I've never wanted to do it ever again. I think that was a, a beginning and end of that idea. But it, it did allow us to make some very funny combinations of uh, what was going on in the field and and uh, what was mud happening on the stage. Sorry? Mud baths, for example. Yes, the mud baths, yes. And then, uh, for example, when Country Joe sings an anti-Vietnam song um, about boys coming home in body bags, we were able to cut to shots of these beautiful young men walking up the hill, uh, just attendees at the at the uh, event, and it was it was a very moving combination. These uh, potential cannon fodder. <laughs> mm. 
Uh, now, tell me about Raging Bull, because that was, uh, I think, your first major project with Scorsese. And you actually, he didn't know much about boxing, but ironically, you perhaps knew a bit more about boxing than he did. Yes, I think uh, the interesting thing about Scorsese and Michael Powell is that they, they not only share the same interests in making films, but they both hated all sports. And funnily enough, Marty has, has made several films that, about sports, uh, one about pool, for example, and obviously about uh, boxing. Uh, and Scorsese... Uh, De Niro had uh, said to him, you have to come see one fight at least, uh, which he did. He went to Madison Square Garden and he saw a fight in which some of the incredible imagery that you see in Raging Bull, a hand reaching into a bucket of water which is filled with blood, sponging down the fighter, uh, and also blood dripping from a rope at the end of the fight. Uh, These were things that Marty actually saw that day, but he never went and saw another fight. I, in fact, had worked on a documentary uh, during the period I couldn't work for him because I wasn't in the union uh, about Muhammad Ali, which was financed by a Japanese actor who was just obsessed with Ali. And I learned a great deal about fighting from that. It was it was a good opportunity to um, see ma- all the fights that Ali had been in and lear- begin to learn about fighting. So I did have some knowledge of it. Now, in the fight scenes, the handlers were real handlers. The fighters, other than De Niro, were real fighters. Uh, did you have to cut around their acting? Because they wouldn't have necessarily been the greatest actors in the world. Actually, hardly ever. It, they were all wonderful. Um, and we, you know, one of the big jobs of an editor in, a, in a, a film about boxing is to sell the punches. In other words, none of them, none of the actors could be being punched all the time like you feel they are in the film. Otherwise, they'd be dead. So uh, we, the, my job is to, well, the cameraman's job, the director's job, and my job is to film the punching in a way so that it is highly believable that the actor is actually only missing by an inch, say, the chin of the other actor. And the, 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 fighter, the other fighter has to snap his head back to make it look believable that he's been hit. And interestingly enough, every single one of them were, were wonderful. They were all middleweight contenders, and uh, they l- caught on very quickly, were extremely good. Let's just hear a clip from Raging Bull. This is the famous second fight between Sugar Ray Robinson and Jake LaMotta. Now, tell me how that whole sequence was was put together, and particularly the the sound underneath it, because obviously we can we can hear uh, some rather strange noises there. We had a brilliant sound editor named Frank Warner, who had already won an Oscar for uh, Close Encounters, and he was this Middle Western guy, kind of okie-dokie kind of guy, with, with just a genius mind for sound. And all of the elements that he brought to Raging Bull were very simple, pure things. There was nothing rocketing around the the, the 
uh, theater as you have now, so much reliance on technical manipulation of, of sound. His ideas were pure and simple. He often would use the bray of an elephant, for example. As De Niro's arm came up and came crashing down on a fighter, you would hear an elephant bray over it, something I would never think of doing, but it was so effective. Uh, and sometimes people don't even realize what they've heard, but the, it's it's having an effect. He would just take a simple drum beat and distort it, slow it down, speed it up. He took the, the, the whistles from the audience, the cries from the audience, and, and would slow them down and created an amazing um, tapestry. And sometimes incredible clarity with things like very uh, antiseptic-sounding click of the flashbulb exploding, which Marty used as a, as a theme throughout the movie, the way the press documented his life and messed up his life a lot. Uh, and it, it was all these incredible sounds, and the way he blended them together added enormously to, to the film. I, I think he's an absolute genius. And how much material would you have had to work with to actually cut that scene, and how did you go about it? There, there would have been quite a bit, but the scene, the fights in the ring were were very storyboarded by Scorsese and very tightly shot. When you get into areas where they're just slugging it out very tight, then there would have been a lot of that, and I would have manipulated that a lot. But some of the fights were so tight that all I had to do was so beautifully constructed by Marty before he shot them that all I had to do was actually cut off the head and tail of the shot and put it together, pick the right take, obviously, but. Um, it was a much more disciplined kind of uh, shooting than improvisational shooting where you have a dialogue sequence where two actors are improvising and you have tons and tons of footage from which you then have to carve down uh, a performance. In those fight scenes, everything was very, very carefully thought out. Very hard to do because you have two fighters and a referee in a ring and a camera crew trying to move around them. Scorsese was committed right from the beginning to being in the ring. He had seen every fight film ever made, and he noticed that hardly ever was the camera in the ring for a very good reason. It's very hard to shoot. But if you look at Raging Bull, you see these amazing shots that he was able to get. Uh, took a lot of dedication from him and the crew and from De Niro's to have the patience to wait while all of those complicated shots got done properly. And he also varied the size of the rings, didn't he? That's right. In the beginning fight, you see, uh, he knew that there were nine fights in the film, and therefore he had to give some difference to each of them. He wanted to give some difference to each of them. And so they were always, uh, the size of the ring and the way the ring was lit uh, was determined by what was going on in Jake's mind at the time. So the first time he fights Sugar Ray Robinson, his great rival, this ring is wide and sweeping. It's artificially extended almost into a rectangle, brightly lit, because that's the great moment when he first uh, knocked down Sugar Ray. And then the next fight, where he lost on a technicality to uh, Sugar Ray, uh, and he can't understand why because he knocked him down in the fight. Everything is shot with flames burning underneath the lens, so you get a mirage-like effect from the top of the flame, from the heat from the flames, and there's fog uh, everywhere, and the camera descends at first into what seems like a pit of hell, and when De Niro sits down in the corner, uh, a rope is right across his eyes, deliberately done by the by the camera crew, and the referee keeps going out of focus, and there's kind of a nauseous feeling about it because Jake could never understand why he, he lost that fight. That's the kind of incredible pre-thinking that Marty put into each one of those fights. And in terms of editing that, you didn't worry too much about matching cuts. In other words, if somebody takes a swing with a right, you cut to a shot and the, the, the punch that lands could actually be a left. Why did you do that? Because that, you know, let's face it, it can look amateurish. Uh, because... 
we decided to experiment with jump cutting and and very free uh, connection of the shots because I think Marty really feels that boxing should be banned. It's an incredibly brutal sport. And he wanted to show what the battering felt like in the in the close encounters when two uh, fighters are up against the ropes punching away at each other. And we just found that it gave more impact. It gave more of a jarring, upsetting feeling if we jump cut shots together. And, and uh, I think it's highly effective. I don't think everyone, anyone has ever accused it of looking amateurish, but it is unorthodox, mm. highly unorthodox editing, very much influenced by Russian um, uh, cutting from the silent days, uh, Eisenstein and Podovkin, wonderful filmmakers who did very experimental editing in the early days. We were talking about the level of improvisation that Scorsese brings to his work. Here's a clip involving uh, Pesci and De Niro in Raging Bull in the kitchen worrying about LaMotta's weight. There's nobody left for you to fight. Everybody's afraid to fight you. Okay, along comes this kid, De Niro. He don't know any better. He's a young kid up and coming to fight anybody. Good, you fight him. Bust his hole. Tear him apart, right? What are you worried about? What's the biggest thing you got to worry about? The weight? You're about the weight. You worried about the weight? What are we arguing about for? I just said the weight. Okay, let's say you lose because of your weight. Are they going to think you're not as tough as you were? You're not the same fighter? Good. They'll match with all those guys that were afraid to match with before. What happens? You'll kill them, and they got to give you a title shot. Bring me coffee, please. Why? There's nobody else. Nobody's left. Who are they going to give it to? Coffee. In a minute. You listen to me. Please, honey, bring me the coffee. All right. Oh, yeah, boy, are you listening? Now let's say you win. You beat De Niro. Yeah. Which is definitely should beat him. Right? Yeah. Right? Yeah. They still got to give you a shot at the title. You know why? Why? Because the same thing as before. There's nobody left. There ain't nobody around. They got to give you the shot. You understand? If you win, you win. If you lose, you still win. There's no way you can lose. And you'll do it on your own just the way you wanted to do it, without any help from anybody. You understand? Just get down to 155 pounds, you fat bastard. You stop eating. What's the problem? Stop eating. That's all. You can do it. You don't understand anything. Do you understand that? You know, now, that scene, heavily and highly improvised, is that kind of material a nightmare to work with? I think for a, a standard Hollywood editor, maybe it is. But I had begun in the documentary field with Marty and we had always loved documentaries. It was the height actually of the cinema verite movement in America and uh, we we just loved them. So it for me to be presented with miles and miles of footage of two brilliant actors improvising together was, was great fun. It took a long time to get the beautiful improvisations to work together as if it was sort of a relatively normal scene. But I loved doing it. It was trying to, it was like a jigsaw puzzle that I had to put together. Now, one of the reasons it was so hard was because normally when Scorsese's working with two great improvisers like De Niro and Pesci, he would always shoot with two cameras so that uh, if one actor goes off on a wild improvisation, he has the reaction of the other. But in that particular sequence, we only had he could only get one camera in the room. It was a real location, tiny, cramped kitchen. And so it made it even harder for me. But I... To, to try and get the best of these wonderful lines that they were coming out with and get it all to fit together was was a great uh, challenge. I, I loved it. He, he got a little annoyed with it because he just it was taking so long and it was such hard 
hard work um, that he had to go away from it for a while. And then I finally cracked it, and, and he came back, and we refined it together. And how would it have been shot? Would it just have been one camera, one take, and that's it? Or would they have finished the improvisation, and would he have said, okay, let's try, let's try it again, and let's try something different, let's try a bit of this, and let's try a bit of that, and then they'd go off and do it again. And you might end up with three or four different versions of the same improvisation and have to, to mix and match them. Is that what happens? That's right. That's why it was so hard. Uh, some of the other improvisations, he was able to shoot with two cameras, and it was much easier for me. But this one was a particular challenge, and... Um, um, it it uh, we we shoot a lot of footage in those situations, tons, you know, many 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 takes. Sometimes even starting the improvisation over within the the same take. If Marty would just look at De Niro and say, "Do it again," and they would start all over again. Uh, but there were just these wonderful moments that occurred. Uh, the humor uh, from Pesci and the the incredibly sad anger from from De Niro that you know you wanted to get every little jewel moment of it to packed into the scene. Uh, so it, it was tremendous fun. But they, we do shoot tons of footage under those uh, situations. Every film will not have improvisation. For example, Gangs of New York had none, really. And a film like Age of Innocence or Kundun, where you're in a much more uh, structured uh, environment where improvisation wouldn't occur na naturally between two Tibetans in the Dalai Lama's palace, but uh, with De Niro and Pesci always. Mm -hmm. And who chooses the best take? Scorsese and I, our best, most valuable time is at the end of the day when he comes and sees the dailies from the day before, and he sits and talks to me constantly. Unfortunately, I write like the wind in the dark, um, and uh, he tells me what he feels about everything, about the performances of the actors, also the camera moves, and uh, then I take all of that information, combine it with my notes, and I use that as my Bible from which I work. Then I present him when we, uh, I go ahead and edit the film for the first cut, but I have selects, which I put in descending order of preference of performance. For example, with someone like De Niro, where you have eight takes that are contenders for the line, I put them in descending order of his preference so that when we go back and we feel we want to change something, we have it all highly organized. Now, for Raging Bull, you won the, this time you were nominated and you actually won the Academy Award. Is that uh, still, or is that the greatest experience uh, of your of your working life, of your film career? It's the film I'm that's the most close to my heart because I was thrust unknowing into this enormous Hollywood scene. Uh, and I had always been my own assistant when we were working in New York in much smaller films. So it was shocking and I had to learn very quickly and, and step up to this great task. But I was given virtually liquid gold to work with when, from the dailies were so stunning right from the beginning. It, it was amazing. But I myself do not feel that Oscar belongs to me. I think it belongs to Marty because he was not given an Oscar that year. It broke my heart backstage when I was waiting for him to come back. I, I thought how could how could anyone not give an Oscar to that movie? Uh, Bob had already won, and the both of us were standing backstage, and I, I just, I was just crushed. Uh, and I've never displayed the Oscar in my home for that reason. Marty won't accept it. Um, I think the beautiful design of those fights is so stunning, and that that's what won us the Oscar. I know people looked at that and they said, "Wow, that's editing," you know. But it was not just editing; it was brilliant directorial design, brilliant camera work, brilliant lighting, brilliant sound work and editing and uh, so I've never displayed it and oddly enough the Academy has just asked me for my Oscar back they're doing a 75th anniversary uh, celebration of the Oscar and I think 
maybe they want to show somehow that they did recognize Raging Bull, because I thought it was odd they were asking for an editor's Oscar instead of a star's, you know? Probably they're using Bob's from Godfather. Um, and so I sent it off, all still in its pristine styrofoam you packaging. I your name on it. Oh, my name so is on it. Back. Yeah. <laughs> oh, they had they came with security guards, two men with pistols uh, in, on their hips, <laughs> with the man who came from the academy, you know. So uh, I, but I, I do feel very conflicted about it. And so it was still in its original styrofoam packing. You know, they were rather stunned. You, you haven't taken it. it out and put it on the mantelpiece. No, I've shown it to people sometimes, but uh, I really feel it wasn't mine. I was I was pretty much of a neophyte then in editing. I mean, I, I wasn't a neophyte. I had been editing documentaries and things, but uh, Marty was so much part of that, and uh, I I just don't feel it's mine. So, um, and I'm I'm also bitter about uh, what happened to him. I feel, mm. yeah. You mentioned the word contender. Let's finish talking about Raging Bull with a clip from the movie where I think De Niro takes over the mantle of Marlon Brando. <laughs> It wasn't him, Charlie, it was you. You remember that night at the garden, you came down my dressing room and you said, kid, this ain't your night. We're going for the price on Wilson. Remember that? This ain't your night. My night. I could have taken Wilson apart that night. So what happens? He gets a title shot outdoors in a ballpark and what do I get? A one-way ticket to Palookaville. I was never no good after that night, Charlie. It was like a peak you reach and then it's downhill. It was you, Charlie. You was my brother. You should have looked out for me a little bit. You should have looked out for me just a little bit. You should have taken care of me just a little bit instead of making me take them dice for the short end money. You don't understand. I could have had class. I could have been a contender. I could have been somebody. Instead of a bum, which is what I am, let's face it, it was you, Charlie. It was you, Charlie. The very interesting thing about De Niro confronting himself in the mirror at the end of the film is that he and Scorsese worked through 15 takes, going from warm, very warm performance uh, to a very cold performance at the end, which is what Scorsese felt was right, that when Jake was confronting his life, uh, he should be cold in his delivery. And uh, the idea of using the On the Waterfront speech actually came from Michael Powell, who had been a big influence on the film right from the beginning. After Scorsese came and found him living in oblivion and brought him back to, brought his films and himself back to the world, um, Michael went down to see where Bob was training. Bob trained for almost two years. He could have fought as a middleweight contender. And uh, Michael was looking at videotapes of the of Bob re- rehearsing in the ring, and he said to Marty, there's something wrong about the red gloves. And something just clicked in Marty's head, and he said, you're right, the film should be black and white. Uh, it was one of those wonderful moments where Michael was able to give back something and repay Marty for all that Marty had done for him. And then when he found out that they were going to try and do another Shakespearean speech, there's one, uh, Jake does a Shakespearean speech at the beginning of the film. They were going to do another one at the end. And Michael said, no, 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 you mustn't do that. You must do something American. Uh, And so they decided to do the On the Waterfront speech. And that was a great gift. It's it's interesting. It's uh, Jake LaMotta doing well, Robert De Niro playing Jake LaMotta doing Marlon Brando doing the <laughs> speech, very complex. But it worked beautifully and would have been much, it's much better than uh, than anything they could have pulled from Shakespeare. It was more appropriate. Yeah. 
Let's move from the first to the most recent and the gangs of New York. And this is Daniel Day-Lewis. I killed the last honourable man 15 years ago. Since then, the priest and me, we lived by the same principles. It was only faith divided us. He gave me this, you know. That was the finest beating I ever took. My face was pulp. My guts was pierced. My ribs was all mashed up. And when he came to finish me, I couldn't look him in the eye. He spared me because he wanted me to live in shame. This was a great man. So I cut out the eye that looked away. Sent it to him wrapped in blue paper. I would have cut them both out if I could have fought him blind. And I rose back up again with a full heart and buried him in his own blood. Now, the gangs of New York, it was a long time coming. It was well worth waiting for, but it was a long time coming. Why did it take so long? Uh, well, uh, several of our films have taken that long, in fact. We've edited films in six months, nine months, a year and a half. Raging Bull took a very long time, mainly because Bob was gaining weight two times while we were shooting it. Goodfellas took a long time. Uh, some films are just complex and, and need a lot of work, and uh, there, this film needed every second that we <laughs> that we had on it. In fact, I don't think we ever really finished mixing it. I have a list of about 20 fades down I would like to change a little bit. Uh, it was huge in scale, you know, with massive battle scenes and many fight scenes, and it was very long, and uh, it just needed that time. There's nothing odd about it. I think people just got... Uh, an artificial sense that it was overdue because Mr. Weinstein was so excited that he wanted he wanted the film out. He wanted to enter it into the Oscar race. And I told him there was no way we could get it ready for the the year before. But he kept dreaming that we could. And, and so I think it gave people an artificial idea of when it would be ready. A lot of people have told me when they see the film, oh, I see why it took you so long. So that, that's been very satisfying for me. And did it have to be very, very heavily cut? I mean, there were rumours that, you know, that it came in at five hours originally or something like that. So was an awful lot of material cut out of it that uh, perhaps uh, Marty Scorsese would have liked to have seen in the film? We did not ever have a five-hour version of, of Gangs of New York. The first... Uh Rough cut was something like 340, which is rather normal for us for a long film like Casino, for example. Uh, and in fact, what we cut out of the film, Scorsese and I feel perfectly happy with. Uh, if we had been, if it would have been financially possible to make the four-hour version of the film, which was originally envisioned but never existed and was never shot, uh, then that that would have been different. But he knew he couldn't afford to to make that long of a film. So what you see in the film now is is exactly what we want in the film. Scorsese does not believe in director's cuts. He feels that whatever you decide to do in the making of your film, you should live with. So uh, he, he doesn't believe in, you know, cutting something out and then having the joy of having it later. When we cut something out, we have decided to live with that decision for whatever reason. But um, we're very happy with, with what we have. There, unfortunately, I wish there was a four-hour version that existed. I wish we'd been able to mm. shoot it. But it was financially just impossible. Uh, it was already a very expensive movie. And only the Weinsteins, frankly, would have, have ever dared to make this movie. No other studio would have gone near it. Uh, so, so I'm, so I'm we're glad. Not, we're not going to get a no. different DVD, because no. I was quite looking forward to uh, a DVD version with at least right. about 20 minutes or half yeah, an hour. Well, I, I wish we'd shot four hours worth, but we didn't. So yeah. that's it. Mm, what you see is what you're going to get. That's right. 
Mm. Mm. Um, and I mean, was it a, a, a difficult, I mean, how, how more difficult was that to edit than, say, for example, Raging Bull was or any of the other movies were? Uh, it was difficult to edit because it, when they found out they would be allowed to shoot it, uh, maybe they should have taken a year to reformulate the script and, and maybe eject some characters and um, try and find a way to to get all the historical information in that we needed. Uh, so we found that when we we were still sort of cutting the film down in a way, still dealing with writing problems in the editing, and that was hard. Uh, so we've, we found that we were um, sometimes writing lines to put over the back of an actor's uh, head so that we could clarify things that they just hadn't time, had time to quite fix when they were first ripping the script down. Um, so it was extremely difficult in that way. It was with these huge battle scenes and fight scenes that was uh, a lot more difficult than even the fights in Raging Bull because the fights in Raging Bull were so uh, short and, and very carefully uh, designed by Scorsese, whereas here we had miles and miles of footage of a huge gang fighting, not just two men in a ring, but huge gangs fighting each other. And then because we were shooting in Italy, we had... Italian extras, and they were all told to keep their mouths shut because we didn't want a bunch of Italian babble on the track. And I had to replace all of those voices, all of those backgrounds, crowd scenes, people shouting, uh, by coming to London and looping a lot of English and, and mainly Irish actors who were wonderful, by the way. The Irish were always the best <laughs> because they were so, I don't know, they just had so much more emotion and uh, power in their lines. There's just more flavor, you know, there was much more flavor. It was hard to get American actors to get a period sound to their voices also. And, and so sometimes I would have Irish actors do uh, American lines, but they had just enough of a flavor in, in their voice that sounded period. Uh, so I spent an enormous amount of time over here uh, in, in England uh, recording these voices, and those all had to be cut and shaped and it was just a massive, massive <laughs> job. <laughs> and uh, uh, Daniel Day-Lewis himself, Ugh. unusual accent that he uses, but it yeah. is actually based on a real accent, isn't it? That's correct. And I think uh, partially, I, I may be wrong. I hope Dan will forgive me if I am. I know he listened to one of the only recordings of Walt Whitman, our great poet at that time. And I think part of the accent is based on that. Our dialect coach, Tim Monick, worked very hard on... St- designing the accents in the film. He was even complimented about it uh, by the L.A. Times reviewer. I was quite shocked. I've never seen that before. He didn't want everyone to sound the same, and he very carefully tried to to make everyone have a distinctive speech pattern. Daniel's accent is perfectly valid. Uh, Just listen to Humphrey Bogart, and you will hear a little bit of that. Um, Some people say it's like De Niro. It's not at all like De Niro. Uh, And um, I just think Daniel did an incredibly brilliant job with that part. I was so lucky to sit in dailies with him at Chinichita because he would look during the day when he wasn't needed on the set and Marty would look at night. Um, and so I was alone with him and he. it was such a joy to share that staggering performance coming alive. I couldn't believe it. He was so out on a limb with the part. He was fearless. He just went right out there and damn the torpedoes, and that's what makes it so great. Um, would he nudge you and say, that's my best take? Uh, I would tell him what Marty had thought was the best take, and he and he would tell me what he, what he thought. Usually they agreed. Uh, mm. Sometimes they didn't. But uh, what a joy it was to watch that performance come alive. And, and when we... I don't know how he does it, you see. It's mysterious. But how does he make someone that evil... Um, 
How does he make people care about him? That's the great trick when you're an actor. Uh, and uh, it was, I was so impressed when we got to the recruited audience previews, which are terrifying for us, where they drag people in off the street. Yeah, you're and we're not showing, crazy about those, are you? I hate them. It's the worst thing in the film business, but you have to do it, and you learn a lot. Uh, they drag people in who've never heard anything about the film. The film isn't finished. It sometimes doesn't have a, its music in. The splices are jumping. The sound isn't finished. It's an agony for us to show it that way. But you learn a lot. And the thing that came up in the cards right away was that they all love Daniel. And when we pressed them about why they did, they said, he's evil, but we care about him. And you know how hard that is to do for an actor? It's, it's, a, it's genius work. And I, I think he, his character, Bill the Butcher, will take its place alongside Travis Bickle of, of Taxi Driver. And uh, I think Jake LaMotta in Raging Bull mm. is a similar case. Um, I want to just finish by talking. We've talked about one of the great influences on your life, Martin Scorsese, but obviously Michael Powell, your husband, mm. would have been a, a professional as well as a, a personal influence. Obviously, we want to talk about the professional influence. And, you know, in what sense was he uh, an influence on you? Scorsese had uh, started educating me about the Powell Pressburger films because they met meant so much to him long before I met Michael. Uh, and I remembered having been deeply influenced as a child when I saw The Red Shoes. I'll never forget the feeling of it. Uh, and it turned out, I found out later, that there was another film which had knocked me flat, which was The Life and Death of Colonel Blimp, which I had seen when I came back to America on television uh, in the afternoon when I would come home from school. You know, we weren't allowed to watch television, but I would turn on this wonderful channel that Marty was also watching, where they had these fantastic uh, films from Europe. Uh, and I, I watched this film, and I remember just being dissolved in tears at the end, my mother coming home, and she always used to feel the top of the television set to see if it was warm. <laughs> Me just barely getting the television set off before where she came in the and the icebox on top of it. <laughs> um, and so it turned out later, when Marty was showing me these films, I said, oh, my God, that's the film I saw that just absolutely flattened me. Uh, and he then wanted to find Michael Powell and Emmerich Pressburger, but they were living in oblivion at that time. After Peeping Tom, my husband's career was completely shattered. He made two films in, in Australia but was never allowed to work in England again. And my, uh, Marty went to the Edinburgh Film Festival to get an award for Taxi Driver, and they said, who do you want to give you the award? And he said, Michael Powell. And they said, Michael Powell? Nobody knows where he is anymore or cares. And he said, well, I do. He's a major influence on my filmmaking. I want him to give me the award. But they couldn't find him. Marty kept looking for him, and he came through London and met the man doing publicity for two, Kubrick's 2001, and he said, I know where he is. And so they had lunch in Soho, and Michael, who had been living in absolute poverty um, in the country and thought he was completely forgotten, said, here was this young Californian director. Actually, Marty was New York, but he was living in California at the time babbling away at me about every camera move I had ever made. And he said it was as if he was waking up from a nightmare. He writes about it beautifully in his book. Uh, and uh, then he said, I want to see one of your films. So Marty showed him Mean Streets. And Michael just loved Mean Streets. He thought it was a masterpiece. Sometimes we would be walking down the street in New York, and he would turn to me and he would say, Mean Streets should be playing every day in New York somewhere. People should be able to go see that movie every day. <laughs> so, so this wonderful relationship began between the two of them. And then luckily, because of that, I met him and, and then married him. Emma Schoonmaker, thank you very much for talking to us. <laughs> that was Thelma Schoonmaker in conversation with Miles Dungan. Next week's guest on Rattlebag from the RTE Radio Archives is the late Seamus Heaney, by Kevin Reynolds, a Larry. 
Drama on One. Sundays at 8pm. rta.ie forward slash drama on one. Drama on one.